Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We have a really important topic. There's not a single person in the United States of America and in other parts of the world, in fact, who is not affected by the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Our guest today is Rob Belote, and he is a lawyer who is in environmental law, but we're going to learn about exactly what type of environmental law um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. But he has been working on a case for the past 20 plus years that that it started in a very, very small town, and it now has worldwide implications. In fact, he has a new book out called Exposure that explains the entire case and exactly what he's been through the last few years. Um, and actually, there's a major motion picture that's coming out very soon in conjunction with his book. It's called Dark Waters, and uh, we all know him as the Incredible Hulk, but uh, Mark Ruffalo is the actor who plays Rob in this movie. So let's bring Rob to the show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Rob. We are so glad to have you on today. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, your book, Exposure, is riveting, and I told you before we started the show, and I'll let my readers know, um, I pulled an all-nighter to finish it. I couldn't put it down. It's an excellent, excellent explanation of of what you've gone through, but you write so well that I felt like I was kind of just peeking into your office and looking on with you the whole time that I was reading it. But I have to get the Hollywood question out of the way, Rob, okay? Because everybody wants to know this. (laughs) How does it feel to have one of the Avengers, in fact, the Incredible Hulk, play you in a movie about your life's work? Well, you know, it's totally surreal. Um, (laughs) You know, I could not have asked for anybody better. He's not only an amazing actor, wonderful person, but, you know, he just brought such a passion and dedication to this project that I just can't imagine being equaled by anybody else. You know, it's um, just really an honor having him take on this part and and can't thank him enough, frankly, for, for helping tell this story and bring it to a wider audience. Well, I'm excited to see the film. Um, Anne Hathaway plays your wife. Uh, Tim Robbins is in it, some of my favorite uh, actors. So I'm really excited to see that. But I want to get back to you and your story because um, it is remarkable what you have done and what you have uncovered. I think that before we get started, it's really important for our listeners to understand the type of law that you practice so that they get sure. a feel for why it's so unusual that an attorney with your background got involved in this case against DuPont. Because we, we've we been on the air for 11 years, and over that time, we've had lawyers from the Natural Resources Defense Council and other um, types of lawyers in that lane. But I don't want our listeners to misunderstand what type of law you practice, so help us understand that. Sure, you know, and this is almost what you might want to call a a separate lane, but um, I started working at um, what people might typically call a corporate defense law firm um, called Taft, Statinius, and Hollister in Cincinnati, Ohio. I started right out of law school in 1990 and asked to join the environmental group. Um, And at that point, uh, a lot of what we were doing uh, was helping represent 
big companies, including chemical companies, comply with all the different environmental laws, federal regulations, state laws, etc. You know, there at that point in time in the early 90s, there were a lot of cleanups going on around the country under Superfund law. So I spent uh, the the first eight years or so of my career at Taft, um, you know, working with big companies, helping them understand all this pretty complex system of state and federal environmental laws. Um, so it was not, you know, not on the, uh, what you would call the uh, the plaintiff side at that point in time. Right. And, and you said that you practice law in Ohio, but actually the story begins in West Virginia. So talk to us right. about how you got involved in got involved in Earl Tennant's case? Well, it was actually uh, back in October of 1998. I was in my office and my phone rang. And on the other end of the line, a gentleman started uh, talking quite rapidly about cows dying on his property. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I had never talked with the individual before, didn't know who he was. Um, and frankly, I was almost about to hang up because um, I didn't know who he was or what was going on. And he mentioned, though, during the call, he said, I got your name from your grandmother, Alma White. And, and that got my attention. And uh, I said, well, how is that? Uh, and he indicated that he actually was raising cattle on property out near Parkersburg, West Virginia, and was having trouble with his cattle and was looking for anybody that could help him, lawyers. Um, he was having trouble in the local community getting any lawyers to help him out. And he just so happened to be talking to his neighbor um, who was had just been on the phone with my grandmother. My, my mom's entire family had grown up in Parkersburg. And in fact, we went there as when I was a kid almost every weekend, um, for, you know, for every major holiday. So it was sort of my hometown. So when he mentioned that he had gotten um, my name uh, from my grandmother, I, I figured I would definitely take a listen. <laughs> uh, you know, when you get a recommendation from your grandmother, you, you pay attention. So That's I right. <laughs> uh, listened to, to a story and invited him up and said, sure, you know, um, we'll take a look at what you have and see if there's something we can do to help you. Well, and he had a lot of information on what was happening to his cows and what he observed in other wildlife on his property and not just the cows. And all he knew is that he was downstream from a DuPont landfill, but there were a lot of unknowns that you had to uncover. Talk to us about the process of discovery and how you identified what was in the water that his cows were drinking. Yeah, you know, he came into our office loaded with VHS tapes. This was back in the day of VHS <laughs> tape and photographs. And uh, we sat down and watched his tapes. And what we saw was, yeah, it seemed like a pretty obvious, serious problem. We saw white foaming water flowing out of a discharge pipe out of a landfill. And his cows were, this is the, the water that the foam was flowing into was a creek that flowed right through the farmer's property that his cows drank out of. You could see the cows standing in the, in the water. You could see the foam. You could see these cows with all kinds of um, health problems, tumors, black teeth, uh, wasting away. And you could see um, on, marked on this discharge pipe was the name of DuPont. Um, and what we understood when we found out from the farmer was this landfill was owned by the DuPont company um, and had been using it to dispose of waste uh, for quite some time. Um, and what the farmer was quite convinced, his name was Earl Tennant, that there was something in that landfill that was 
killing his cows. At this point, he had lost over 100 cows. Um, And he was convinced there was something in the landfill. He had gone to the company. He had gone to the state's EPA. He had had tried calling the federal EPA. Uh, He wasn't getting any help or any answers. So he had come to us to try to figure out what was in this water, what was in that landfill. And we thought, you know, this, we would hope, we assumed it was a fairly straightforward thing. It was the kind of thing that I did all the time as far as working with companies with landfills. We, we would simply pull the permits, look at what kind of chemicals were listed and regulated to be in that landfill, and figure out which one was probably in there at too high of levels. So we thought this is something we could help with. You know, um, this was something we did. This is something I had experience in. I could pull the landfill permits. Uh, I'd find out what chemicals were there and, and get to the bottom of it. But that wasn't so easy, was it? <laughs> um, it was because not. No. What you found was that it wasn't something that straightforward. Talk to us a little bit about the process that you went through, um, even just to figure out what the substance was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we uh, we went in thinking this would be rather straightforward. And what we found is when we pulled the permits and we looked at all the listed chemicals, we weren't finding anything that really could explain what we were seeing. Some, anything that would cause this kind of foam, anything that would cause these kinds of health effects. So we started really digging in, started going through the documents. I started um, uh, demanding more documents from DuPont. Uh, I started asking them for documents from their plant down, down the road. Uh, you had the world's largest Teflon manufacturing facility right up the road that was sending waste to this plant. So I started asking him for those documents, and suddenly we got a lot of pushback. No, no, no. We'll give you we'll give you the documents about what's in the landfill, but you don't need all these plant records. We had to, we went through a lot of fighting. We had to get court orders, and we finally started getting all those uh, plant files from Dupont and started digging into them. And it was at that point, one day, uh, sifting through hundreds of thousands of pages of documents, that I stumbled across a reference to a chemical called PFOA. And it was referencing the fact that a lot of this chemical had been used at the plant for decades, and some of it was being sent in waste to this landfill. And I tried to find whatever I could about it. I didn't see it on the permits. I couldn't figure out, you know, what is this stuff? And then it finally occurred to us that we were dealing with a completely unregulated chemical. Um, And that Let's let that led us down to a, a, a whole nother path and a whole nother series of, of efforts to try to figure out what was this mystery chemical and why was it that there was so much of it being used, so much of it being dumped in this landfill, and nobody seemed to know anything about it outside the company. Well, and then there came a point where there was a cattle team report right. that was a part of the story. So talk to us about that component of the story. Well, when we first got involved in the case and Mr. Tennant had come to us saying, you know, look, we're, we're not getting any of the agencies to, to pay attention to this. Can you help us? Um, it was soon after we filed the initial lawsuit for Mr. Tennant uh, in West Virginia back in 1999 uh, that we were contacted by DuPont's lawyers who told us, hey, you know, good news. We have a joint investigation already underway. Mm-hmm. Uh, between DuPont's 
top people and some of the top people at the U.S. EPA, and we are investigating exactly what's happening to these cows. And so there is a team of experts that we're calling the cattle team, three scientists from DuPont, three scientists from EPA. They're going to investigate these cows. They're going to get right to the bottom of what might be causing their problem. And at the time, we thought, oh, this is great. Uh, you know, we've got top experts at DuPont. They, they've got some of the best scientists in the world and at EPA. Um, and, you know, we thought this would really help identify what the problem was. But when we finally got the report, the report essentially said um, we couldn't identify any chemical problem. It must just be that the farmer doesn't know how to raise cattle. Um, so that didn't sit well with Mr. Tennant. It didn't jive with what I had actually seen on the property. I knew that wasn't the case. Uh, so it really prompted us to start digging into what was going on. And it wasn't until years later, uh, through additional discovery and you know, getting documents from DuPont, that we found out that the cattle team had never been told about this chemical in the water, even though the DuPont representatives knew all about it, and had never even tested the cows for this chemical. And unfortunately, by the time we all realized that, virtually every cow was dead. So we couldn't go back and test them at that point. Wow, this is unbelievable. And we've got so much more to talk about with Rob and his brand new book, Exposure. You can get it um, everywhere books are sold. You can just hop on out on Amazon if you want to and get it, Exposure. Um, We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Rob Belote, and he is the author of a brand new book called Exposure, One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. Rob is a is a lawyer out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and he has uh, uncovered one of the greatest um, Gosh, you don't want to use the word conspiracies because that's so overused these days. But one of the biggest cover-ups that I personally have ever heard of, of a company um, knowingly putting something out into the environment that has impacts that we'll describe later in the show um, and and getting by with it until Rob came along. And so I'm so happy that we have Rob with us to talk about how he has been involved in this case while you were on Earl Tennant's case, during the deposition phase, you gained insight into what DuPont knew about this chemical PFOA, and you also gained access to the Guy and Tave study. Talk to us about that and why it was so pivotal in Earl Tennant's case. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, once we found out that we were dealing with um, this mystery chemical called PFOA that was in the landfill and likely in the creek water that the cows were drinking, we started digging in to try to find out what, what is this stuff and what do we know about it? What can it do to cows? What could it do to the family members uh, of Mr. Tennant that were nearby at this landfill? And when we, st- we started digging into the internal files, and again, it, it took a while to, to get these documents from the company. We had to go and get court orders. But once we started digging in, what we saw were there were decades of internal studies going back to the early 1950s um, within the company looking at the toxicity of this chemical, what kind of effect it could have on animals and humans. And what we saw was that you know, by, the, by the early 60s, they were finding all kinds of toxic effects uh, in animal laboratory studies. By the 1980s, they had actually confirmed that PFOA could cause cancer in animals. And, and the company itself classified the chemical as a confirmed animal carcinogen in the 1980s. Um, and, but, but most disturbing was that study, I think you just mentioned, the Guy and Tavy study. And what that was, was uh, researchers back in the 1970s had found uh, that there was PFOA and uh, these perfluoro, what we call perfluorinated chemicals. They were finding it in the blood of the general U.S. population in the mid-1970s and speculating that it might be related to these, these chemicals. Uh, um, and in fact, the, once that study came out, the manufacturer, 3M, 3M made PFOA and then sold it to DuPont, their main customer who used it in making Teflon in Parkersburg. Well, when 3M saw that data, they started looking at whether this was getting into the blood of workers exposed to it. And sure enough, it was. DuPont started testing workers in the 70s, and they found that it was getting into the blood. So not only did you have this very disturbing toxicity and cancer data in animals, you also had this this information suggesting that once this chemical got out and people were exposed to it, it would get in their blood. And not only did it get in their blood, it stayed there 
the companies understood it was very persistent. It stayed in human blood and it built up over time. It accumulated. And if it would get into the environment, it would stay there virtually forever for millions of years. It could not break down. These were completely man-made synthetic chemicals invented you know, by 3M right after World War II. They didn't exist on the planet prior to that point. And they had this unique chemical structure of carbons and fluorines, which made them extremely difficult to break down in the environment. So even when DuPont started looking at this data and they realized, look, we're using it at this manufacturing plant in West Virginia. It's going up our stacks into the air. It's being dumped directly into the Ohio River. It's being discharged into landfills that are leaking into the ground gee, let's look and see if it's getting into the public water. And they went out and secretly tested the public water supplies by 1984, and sure enough, it was in the water. And nobody was told because it was unregulated. And so, yeah. you know, we, we, as we're looking through those documents, we just realized we were dealing with something that was not only, um, you know, potentially affecting these cows because we found that there were 7,000 tons of PFOA-soaked sludges had been dumped into the landfill next to Mr. Tennant's property. So not only was that was what was likely killing the cows, it was in the entire community's water supply, had been there for years, and nobody had been told. And, and, and I just find this unfathomable, but there's something that you can help us understand. Help us understand how it is possible that this information that 3M and DuPont had didn't reach regulators and prompt action from the EPA to protect the American public from this chemical. What should we know about how chemicals are regulated in this country? Well, you know, you have to keep in mind, these were chemicals that first came out onto the market in the early 1950s. That was decades before there was a U.S. EPA. The U.S. EPA wasn't even created until 1970. And the first really major federal law regulating new chemicals coming out into the environment came out in 1976 called the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TOSCA. And under that law, it really focused primarily on new chemicals. So in other words, things coming out after 1976. So what about these chemicals that were already out there, like PFOA? Uh, For the existing chemicals, there was essentially a burden put on the companies that were making and using them to notify EPA if they, if the companies, acquired information suggesting they presented a substantial risk of harm. So it was up to the companies to alert the EPA if any of these existing chemicals were causing harm. And what we saw, unfortunately, in the documents was time after time when this disturbing evidence would come up through studies of animals and workers, the decision was made repeatedly not to notify the EPA. No, we don't believe this presents a substantial risk. So, and for, you know, the, unfortunately, this information had not made its way to the state or federal regulators. So when we were looking at all of this and finding all of this, this was probably the summer of 2000, early 2001, when I'm looking at these documents, mm-hmm. I'm looking at what I see to be a massive public health threat. People are drinking this stuff. Uh, it's been in their water for years. And the regulators probably had no idea what was happening at that point. Wow, that that is unreal. And, and but 
quite real. And that's probably not the only instance in which this has happened, but let's stay focused on PFOA. So during the discovery process, DuPont sent you hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. They did not bother to tab it and collate it. I mean, they were, you know, a disorganized mess on purpose, but you uh, went through all of them and you made sense of them all. And then finally, you sent a 12-pound quote-unquote letter (laughs) that had a tremendous impact on Earl Tennant's case. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, it was at this point in time where I had, as you as you indicated, spent a lot of time going through lots and lots of documents um, and organizing them all and trying to, you know, figure out what had happened here. How how could this happen? Uh, you know, how could you have contamination like this going on for years uh, with virtually no one knowing? Um, and as I went through all these documents, it became increasingly clear, um, you know, that the public did not know about this, and the regulators didn't know. And, um, you know, that that we might be the only ones, frankly, who had any knowledge of this outside the company. So I I believed it was a significant public health threat. So I sat down and tried to collect the the key information we had seen in those documents um, and attach it in a way that would lay out very clearly what was happening and send it. I sent it in March of, of 2001 to the federal and state agencies saying, this is what's happening. This is what's going on in West Virginia and Ohio. You really need to look at this chemical. Um, and, you know, the, the steps ought to be taken now to try to protect people from this chemical. That was 2001. Um, and at that point, um, at least once we sent that letter, the community became aware that this was in their water, and the the regulatory agencies really for the first time um, became aware that there was ongoing exposure like this going on in among tens of thousands of people in the Ohio River Valley. Well, it it's not hyperbole to say that what you did was heroic, and we should all be grateful for you doing that. I mean, you would think that that would fall under the purview of a scientist, uh, maybe even an activist. That's so not you. You were a lawyer assigned to a case, but because of the due diligence that you took with this case and the the gravity of the outcome that you understood it had, you did this, and it, it helped Earl get a a nice settlement. But when he did, he wasn't all that happy, was he? Talk to us about why he was so uneasy about the outcome of his case. Yeah, you know, I think what had happened is during during his case, we had discovered not only what we thought had been killing his cows and possibly making Earl himself and his family members ill, ill. Um, we had uncovered a much bigger problem. We had uncovered this contamination of the entire surrounding community. And, you know, what Earl was concerned about was making sure that got addressed. Um, you know, he didn't want this to just go away um, once, once his case was resolved. He wanted to find a way to make sure that the community was protected as well. Well, and that's about the time, not long after that, that Joe Kiger entered the picture. And talk to us about how his case was different from Earl Tennant's case. Yeah, once we once we alerted the agencies and the public, you know that this this chemical was in their water. Um, there was a one of the residents there in the community that had been drinking this for years was Joe Kiger, um, and Joe went and looked at this information and uh, contacted us to say, hey, you know, we would our community wants this out of their water. 
what can we do to get this out of our water? And we want to know if this thing can, you know, if this chemical can kill cows, if it can kill monkeys and test, you know, test laboratory tests, cause cancer, et cetera, what will it do to us? What will it do to the community drinking it for years and years? Because at this point in time, you know, there was no, there were no regulations. There were no federal or state standards because the regulators really didn't know about the chemical. But DuPont itself had set its own internal guideline for drinking water, saying no more than one part per billion in the water. And what we had found is the levels were two to three times that in the local wow. community. So Joe came to us and, and wanted us to find a way to help the entire community get it out of the water and, and, make, and, and try to figure out what can this do to us and can we be protected in the long term if it does cause problems. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. And in case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Rob Belote, and he is a lawyer in Cincinnati, Ohio. He has a brand new book out called Exposure, One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. And as if that weren't enough, there's also an upcoming motion picture called Dark Waters, where actor Mark Ruffalo plays Rob and um, Anne Hathaway plays Rob's wife. That's pretty cool. And Tim Robbins is also in it. And and Exposure is the book that tells the story that that movie um, will depict. And Rob, we're so thankful that you could come on Go Green Radio to explain this 20-year battle with DuPont. There's an aspect that you brought up in the book that I think is really worth talking about. And I'd like for you to explain the concept of the revolving door between government and industry and the role that that played in this case, particularly as it relates to the quote-unquote safe levels of PFOA that the CAT team determined was acceptable. Sure. You know, um, after Earl, um, after Earl's case, uh, you know, as we just mentioned before the break, Joe Kiger had come to us trying to, to, to see if we could help him, you know, on behalf of the whole community. So we filed actually a class action against DuPont in August of 2001, uh, trying to seek clean water and medical monitoring, diagnostic testing, and studies of the people in the community. Um, and we, at the time, again, there still was, was no state or federal guidelines or regulations, so we just had this DuPont guideline saying that um, there shouldn't be really any more than one part per billion of this chemical in drinking water. Uh, so right after we filed that lawsuit, uh, what we saw was DuPont going to the state of West Virginia, where it had a, a pretty good relationship with the regulators there, um, and uh, quickly set up a team called the C8 Assessment of Toxicity Team, you, you, as you mentioned, the CAT team. And this was very similar to what we had seen with the cattle team. Uh, it was once again DuPont scientists forming a team with this time state regulators, and their, their purported purpose was to come up with a government-proved safety level for this chemical in the water. And by this point, you know, there had been sampling up and down the Ohio River, and the levels were now being found at 10 times DuPont's number. One of the wow. public wells came back at 35 times that number. So in the, in the spring of 2002, this, this, this team that DuPont put together with West Virginia came back and said, it's perfectly safe if it's 150 parts per billion in the water. Um, and we, what we found out was, you know, this was something that uh, where the state regulators has essentially uh, worked closely with DuPont. Um, DuPont had some of its consultants provide the science and provide the data. And, you know, th- what we saw here was something that unfortunately is, is common. As, as you mentioned, you know, we've got a revolving door. Um, oftentimes you see government um, uh, folks leave jobs in the government sector and then go work for the industry. You know, in this case, we actually even saw the opposite. The door swing the opposite way. A lot of the folks that were DuPont's attorneys uh, that worked on this, setting up this whole CAT team process, once it was in place, they left their private jobs and went to become the heads of the West Virginia EPA, the people that were then enforcing this very agreement. So it was, um, um, you know, my, my local counsel in West Virginia, you know, explained to me that's just the way things work in West Virginia. But uh, unfortunately, it was um, a fairly common 
problem across the country. It is. And actually, the chemical industry isn't the only player in this. And and we've heard stories that this happens in every state capital. I'm out in California. We know it happens in Sacramento. It happens in Washington, D.C., across a multitude of industries. But that's just one shocking example of how um, the regulators you know, and the and the industry themselves have such a um, very close chummy relationship and how the public's health and safety can be impacted. I want to take a quick step back because I know you're a very humble person. Um, you know, you're you're a, a Midwesterner. I'm originally from Illinois. I know the mindset, you know, you don't make a big deal of yourself, but I want to make sure our listeners understand you put in an excruciating amount of hours year after year, not just on the legal case, but to to gain scientific knowledge. Um, and, and you had to put in so much attention to detail um, to uncover the facts necessary to represent this class action lawsuit. I think it's really important for people to understand how hard and how long you had to work in order to achieve those outcomes. This was not a task for somebody who puts work-life balance as their number one priority. Just give us a little window into what you endured during this process? Uh, you know, it, um, it was a long process. Uh, you know, as, as we talked about, you know, when we first dug into this, uh, we thought it would be rather straightforward, but then we soon discovered we were dealing with this mystery unknown chemical. And unfortunately, most of the information, um, as it started to finally come in, you know, we had to fight to get all the documents. It was becoming clear that pretty much all of the, the, the folks that knew much about the chemical worked for the companies um, that were using it. Um, and there weren't scientists and others on the outside, so to speak, that we could go to for help um, because few people knew what this was or understood how it, how it behaved in the environment, how it worked in people. Um, so we had to spend an incredible amount of time learning the science of what this chemical is um, working with outside experts, you know, to try to help us understand this. Uh, it took years, um, and it was incredibly complex because, you know, we weren't just handling a legal case. Uh, it wasn't just the lawsuit that was going on at this time. Uh, you know, the regulators had been alerted to what was happening. So there were all kinds of activities happening at the regulatory level that we had to be monitoring and, and watching, uh, you know, to make sure something like this CAT team uh, that had been set up didn't happen again and to try to, to make sure that the regulators weren't being misled. There were things happening in the scientific world. Uh, studies were being published or, you know, misleading information was being put out into the scientific press. Um, you know, there were things happening on the political level as well. So, you know, t- in order to represent these folks, you know, we're talking about a chemical that was critical in manufacturing a very valuable product, you know, for a Teflon product line. Uh, there was a lot of um, um, a lot of things at stake. Uh, so it was a hard fought battle. And, you know, we, it was essentially, uh, you know, those of us here on this side of the of the wall that were, were trying to put all of it together and, and manage this and understand what was happening on all these different levels, um, you know, versus a multinational corporation that has staff dedicated to, they have science, they have scientists on staff, they have PR people, they have government lobbyists. Uh, it was a, um, a formidable challenge. Um, and, you know, this, this is something that, that has lasted many, many years. Uh, you know, we're in our 20th year now. Uh, and a lot of this occurred 
during the biggest economic downturn in U.S. history as well. Um, but so we had to keep going, you know, through that difficult time and, and keep keep up with the science, keep up with, with, with um, what was going on on all these different levels for 20 years. Well, and I, I want to give some real credit to your law firm because um, they supported you and there were a lot of risks that they were willing to absorb by supporting your involvement in this case. So for just a moment, can you, can you talk to us about that, that piece of the puzzle? Sure. You know, I mean, you have to step, take a step back and look at the fact that, in, you know, when we decided to bring this class action lawsuit in 2001, we were bringing it against one of the biggest chemical companies on the planet. And, you know, we were doing it through our environmental practice group at Taft, which historically, you know, represented a lot of the big chemical companies. But, you know, we felt confident that these were such bad facts. Uh, there was such b- uh, bad behavior that our clients would understand, you know, this is this, this is not typical. Um, this this was something that that you know it made sense why we were pursuing this. Um, you know, and this this stretched long periods of time. We had to front a lot of expenses, as I mentioned, with all these different scientists, um, and be able to stick it out for years. Mm-hmm. The, these legal processes take many, many years. Um, and, you know, when we eventually set up a science panel, which I probably talk about later, but, you know, that was the process that dragged out many years. Um, and here we are, we're taking on a class action lawsuit in 2001 on a chemical that was completely unregulated. Uh, you know, so it was a sort of unprecedented risk. Um, you know, it, it, um, it could have gone either way at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, you know, in addition to everybody sending Rob a thank you note, uh, wouldn't be a bad idea to send one to his law firm <laughs> because um, it was a team, you know, you had a good team behind you and I'm so grateful and I know that a lot of other people are as well. You know, when I read in the book about the birth defects among DuPont employees, my heart just broke. I'm a mom and, and this was so sad. Talk to us a little bit about Karen Robinson and Sue Bailey. Yeah, one of the um, one of the early animal studies. You know, I mentioned how there had been all these decades of research using laboratory animals uh, that were showing all kinds of toxic effects um, by exposure to this chemical. One of the early laboratory studies that came out back in 1981 from 3M, the manufacturer of the chemical, showed that exposure to of uh, baby rats to the chemical caused defects in the eyes. Um, and at that point, when DuPont was notified, they immediately um, started implementing a study of the humans, uh, the human the workers at their DuPont Teflon plant to see whether or not there were any similar problems happening in the eyes of human babies born to women who'd been exposed to the Teflon process. So they actually went back and reviewed the files and found that there had been seven women that had recently given birth that had been exposed to PFOA in the Teflon plant. Two of those, two out of the seven, had babies with eye defects. And those were Sue and Karen. Um, Sue Bailey, um, her son Bucky, and Karen with her son Chip. Um, And as soon as, unfortunately, when DuPont found that two out of seven uh, of the human babies had been born with those defects, um, their study was stopped it was never published, and it was never made public. 
and those women were not told, you know, that they that they there had been this kind of connection between the rat studies and the, and their human. Absolutely unbelievable. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but don't go away, folks. We have so much more to talk about with Rob. There'll be more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We're talking with Rob Belote about his new book called Exposure, One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont. And there's a brand new movie that's coming out that is the story of his life's work. Mark Ruffalo plays Rob, and the movie's called Dark Water. So I want you to get the book, and I want you to see the movie because... This impacts absolutely every one of us, and we're going to find out how during this segment. Rob, I want to fast forward the story a little bit and talk about how you used the settlement funds from the class action lawsuit. What did you do? Sure. Uh, we were we, After making a lot of this information available to the, the regulatory agencies and the agencies started uh, moving in and um, actually even suing DuPont for having withheld information, we were able to reach a settlement with DuPont for the community in West Virginia and Ohio. We were able to get them immediately uh, put uh, water filters into the public water supplies and in their homes if they were on private wells. But one of the things we also did was we wanted to answer that question of what would this do to people in the long term? And we were still getting, you know, the argument from DuPont, well, there was no evidence that, it proved, you know, that could prove it caused 
any health effects at the levels these people were drinking, uh, even though we had the animal studies and the worker studies. So we actually uh, set up a, 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 a science panel, independent scientists who would study that and determine whether this chemical in the water was actually linked to disease. Um, and part of the Part of the settlement also uh, was to, to provide cash, $70 million in cash from the company. But rather than simply cut checks to everybody and, and hand that out, we decided we would use that money to actually collect the data that we needed to finally confirm what the chemical did to people in the water. There had never been a big enough study. We needed tens of thousands of people to confirm these rare health effects like cancer in humans. So we used the 70 million to pay people to come in, have their blood drawn, provide medical information, and then turn all that information over to the medical panel. We ended up getting 69,000 people to participate in that study. Ended up being one of the biggest human health studies ever done, 12 different epidemiology studies, took seven years to do it. Uh, but at the end of the day, they were able to prove, because of all that participation, that drinking the chemical could cause six different diseases, including two types of cancer. Unbelievable. That is amazing. Now, everybody in the U.S. knows about what happened with the Flint water crisis. Um, I actually work, uh, you know, with the school district in Newark, New Jersey, and I know that a lot of people, especially on the east coast and east of the Mississippi, know about the lead in the water situation in Newark, New Jersey. But what you've uncovered extends to every region in the country, Rob. What do you want Americans to know about the extent of this crisis? Well, you know, with, with the science panel work that we just talked about, um, we finally were able to prompt EPA to, to require water supplies to start sampling for this. That happened in 2013, 2014. And so f- for the first time, you started getting communities outside of West Virginia and Ohio, basically, uh, that were looking for this chemical in the water. And over the next couple of years, sure enough, the chemicals started being found in water supplies all over the country. And not only in the United States, it's been found globally in, in water. And during the same period of time, what we know is it's not just PFOA. There are, there are a number of related chemicals that are part of the PFAS, P-F-A-S, uh, the chemical family. PFOA is just one of them uh, that are also turning up in water. And most disturbingly, these chemicals are still being found in the blood. They are found in the blood of almost 99% of the people in this country, including babies are born with a chemical. Um, and I think what, we, what would be really important is to know, particularly as people are starting to find the chemical in the water, look for information about it, trying to figure out what these related chemicals can do, I, I, would, I really am hoping that with the book and with the movie, people realize we do have information about this chemical. We do, we've had some of the most extensive studies ever done on this chemical. Let's use what we have, the 20 years of work to confirm you know, the information we have on this chemical, and use that information to make sure we stop these exposures uh, and that people are being able to protect themselves from, from any further exposure to the chemical. There's legislation now being proposed to do that. There are a variety of groups out there, like the Environmental Working Group, Green Science Policy Institute, that are making information available for people to know what kind of products should I avoid 
so I can avoid these chemicals? You know, who's switching to safer chemicals so that I can avoid exposure? So the information's there, and I'm just hoping that we can use it and learn from it and move forward to protect ourselves. Absolutely. And and just so our listeners are very clear about this, because sometimes when you scan a news article, we're all guilty of this, seeing a headline and we just scan it, we might be left with the impression that PFOA is a fairly new chemical and that the family of chemicals is fairly new and that you know, it just made the scene about the, the same time that you got involved right. in Earl Tennant's case, but that's not true. Make sure we understand how long PFOA has been contaminating our environment and our bodies. Exactly. And, you know, we, we may see these, and uh, for the last several years, I've seen them referred to repeatedly in different contexts as emerging chemicals. Um, and they're not. The only thing that's emerging is our understanding, is the public awareness of them. Again, these chemicals, the PFOS chemicals, I mean, they were first invented right after World War II. I mean, these chemicals have been out in our environment for 50, 60 years, 70 years, and have been spewed out into the air, the water, the soil. And because the PFOA and PFOS, related chemical, for example, um, they don't break down. You know, you hear them now referred to as forever chemicals. Um, they, pretty much everything that's ever been emitted is still out there still in the soil, still in the water, and is getting into our blood. So these are far from new chemicals that are just now being discovered. Um, they've been out there for decades. The companies have been well aware of the health effects of these chemicals for decades. And unfortunately, it's only the public and the regulatory community that's, that's just now becoming aware and realizing the scope of the contamination and the severity of it. Mm-hmm. Now, on Go Green Radio, we don't like to leave our listeners hanging. I don't want to leave our listeners with information on a problem without also giving them some actionable steps. What are some of the actions that our listeners can take this week, this month, or in the near future to address what they now know about PFOA? Yeah, I think one of the first things is, is to find out whether or not your um, drinking water supply has been tested. Um, uh, for this chemical. A lot of, a lot of the, the larger public water supplies are testing um, and where it's been found, fortunately, it's typically being filtered out or bottled water is being supplied while filtration systems are in place. So avoiding exposure through drinking water because that's one of the primary ways to be exposed. Yet the chemical has been used in so many different com- consumer products beyond just Teflon cookware, it's been used in fast food wrapper packaging, carpeting, etc., that you, you, you want to try to educate yourself on what kinds of materials has this chemical been used in and what kind of products can I um, choose to avoid um, or switch to. And as I mentioned, there are a number of groups that are making that information available now so that people can make choices, um, you know, because it once you know, you can at least make the decision to avoid continuing to be exposed to these things. And you can take steps to ask your, um, your local officials um, to, to, to enact laws and, and, and do what's necessary now to prevent further exposures and, most importantly, clean up what's already out there. Rob, I think that we are all just realizing what a what a debt we owe to you. I want to thank you so much for your book. I want to thank you for coming on Go Green Radio, um, and thank you for 
over two decades of amazing work. You are a hero. And thank you so much to your family for uh, for allowing you to do this kind of work. So shout out to your wife as well and your children. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.